0: Thanks for tuning into to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Carwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jake Linarden. Jake is a research fellow at Deakin University in Australia, and his research involves looking at different treatment approaches for eating disorders. And he's also got a keen interest in understanding how we can use technology to better reach those in need. On top of that, he's published over 40 peer-reviewed papers, he's on the editorial board of the International Journal of Eating Disorders and Body Image, and he's the founder of the website Break Binge Eating. This is probably one of the most important podcasts I've done to date because I don't think people fully appreciate just how many people in the health and fitness industry probably suffer from eating disorders or some form of disordered eating. Part of that is probably due to people constantly comparing themselves to the social media accounts they follow and inadvertently much of the content on social media, in the fitness sphere at least, could be contributing to the problem. While I don't expect this episode to solve any of those issues, I really hope it'll educate people a little more and put them in a better position to look for more information if they want to or, or need to. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I learned so much from Jake and if you do I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use or if you're listening on YouTube consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts and if you can please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram Twitter or even LinkedIn not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak, and that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think this information could benefit, maybe someone's struggling with an eating disorder themselves, please let them know about this and maybe it can be of some sort of help to them. So, on to this conversation with Jake. Let's talk science.
1: Hi, Jake. How are you doing?
0: Good. How are you, Richie? Great, mate. Great to see you today. Um, thanks very, very much for, uh, for agreeing to do this and to, to join me today. No, thank you for
1: inviting me. It's a, it's a real privilege.
0: Um, so I suppose just for, for anybody who, who might not be familiar with you, um, would you be able to give us a little bit of an introduction and maybe tell us a little bit about your, your career path um, and what you're doing right now?
1: Yeah, so my name is, is Jake, obviously, and um, so I am, I am a research fellow in Australia, Melbourne, um, at Deakin University, where I do research uh, full-time, uh, looking at the treatment um, and, I guess, the causes of eating disorders, particularly binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa. Um, very keen uh, researcher who does a little bit of teaching on the side, um, but, you know, my main priority and focus is towards um, uh, pumping out as good quality research as possible and, you know, hoping to continue that for a very long time and I'm also started an, a, a website and an Instagram called Break Binge Eating, which is just basically uh, an account designed to provide open access information, self-help strategies uh, for people struggling with these types of issues. And it's keeping me very busy. And I'm um, very satisfied
0: with with how it's
1: all going at the moment.
0: Uh, as you should be, um, like uh, as we discussed just before uh, we, we came online here, um, I was saying your your output of of research is absolutely prolific. Um, I was I was going through some of your research today. I was like 2020, uh, 2020, 2020, 2020. Like, how many papers can this guy put out in just like, a few
1: months? <laughs> yeah, so, it's, uh, uh, bottom. bottom. A lot of late nights, um, a lot of writing and a lot of looking at a lot of uh, numbers. So I guess you could say my social life has taken a hit, but we are in the middle of a pandemic, so no one has a social life really at the moment. Um, but yeah, I've certainly tried to keep busy and it's, it's I guess you could say it's my hobby. It, it's a pretty sad hobby, but you know what it is.
0: Yeah, hey, look, it's a great hobby. Right? Like uh, I'm in the same club, so uh, I think it's a good hobby anyway. Um, j- just, just out of curiosity, so it's it's obviously a very very specific, a very very niche area that that you're researching, um, and it's getting a lot more attention now, obviously. And you know, obviously, part of that is due to, to some of your work. But what was it originally that made you want to move in the direction of um, studying eating disorders?
1: Um, so there are a couple of couple of key points. Uh, one is. The the first one is you know back in the earlier days when young teenage you know early twenties to some extent um, you know there was an always there was always a push for striving to achieve a certain ideal body uh, for men in particular we know that it's uh, muscularity being that lean slash bulky kind of figure um, so there was for me there was that motivation towards getting to that uh, that ideal. And you, when someone who is trying to get to that ideal, you know, they engage in some of the symptoms of eating disorders. So things like um, rigorous and compulsive exercise, you know, extreme dietary restraint. So all those different food rules we have and even kind of, you know, always striving, never really content or happy with your body. And I could catch myself um, it, Displaying those particular signs and symptoms, so then that was during the time I was doing my undergraduate degree in psychology. So it just it just started from there. It's like I developed an interest because I recognised some of the things that were going on in myself. And when I started to get to my honors year, I could um, choose my own research topic to pursue. So I decided to do it in the area of eating behaviour, and I really loved it. And then it just kind of went from there. I then immediately went into a PhD where I focused, you know, on the on the hardcore eating disorders per se. And then, um, yeah, it's just it's just kind of snowballed from that. So it's just a, a keen interest. And also in mental health in general. My area is mainly eating disorders, but I do a little bit of just general mental health, like depression and anxiety too. Um, but yeah, eating pathology is, is kind of
0: my niche. I, I think. I, I think for for a lot of people, cause you brought you mentioned a kind of a specific circumstance there, and you know, you just uh, when you were younger, you were getting into that whole like you know fitness routine and fitness lifestyle, and there is a very um, let's say there's a lot of almost pressure on people to conform to certain. Let's say body types and images, uh, and I think it's very, very common amongst people in this industry, in the fitness industry, to to feel some of the things that you said that you observed in yourself. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm really, really glad that we're going to be having this uh, conversation today. But I suppose just to to kind of set us up for the conversation, um, what are some of the more common eating disorders, and 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 what is, what's the best way of kind of describing them or, or diagnosing them? Because um, yeah i'm sure that's that's not as easy as one would imagine
1: yeah so the the, the common eating disorders we we see um, the the ones that we usually think of are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder so anorexia nervosa is when someone has kind of a really dangerously low body weight there's a refusal to recognize that they are at a dangerously low body weight and there's really core elements of core body image components that are going on there. So we know that these people have a really intense fear of weight gain. Um, They tend to regularly feel fat uh, and they also uh, show distorted views of themselves and their body. So the way in which they maintain their, their, their really low body weight is through severe dietary restriction. And whereas most people who have who engage in dietary restriction or severe dietary restriction are relatively unsuccessful at maintaining it, um, this subset of people so this pool of people um, uh, are successful and the consequence of that is they become dangerously uh, have a dangerously low body weight. Uh, so they're the mechanisms, I guess, that are driving the anorexia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa is where it's characterized by recurrent episodes of binge eating. So binge eating just simply means eating uncontrollably and a really large amounts of food. And then that's it. That's followed up by various compensatory behaviors. So we see things like self-induced vomiting, um, you know, laxative misuse and also driven and compulsive exercise. So the the idea is that people use those compensatory behaviors because they feel so guilty and ashamed of the binge eating that they want, they're desperately trying to get rid of the excess calories consumed. And what's underlying or underpinning that is extreme over-evaluation of body weight and shape, which just basically means people's identity is intertwined with what they look like and what they weigh and it's kind of theorized that that's the thing or that's the component that is responsible for all these eating disorder behaviors like bulimia uh, like binge eating and purging and binge eating disorder is relatively similar to bulimia nervosa but the only difference is is that um, there's no compensatory behaviours followed up by the binge eating. So people just usually binge eat. They kind of loathe themselves. They feel a lot of disgust and shame, but they don't go and do anything about that. Um, they just they, they don't go and compensate. So And they also experience those really extreme concerns about their body image as well, like bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. But interestingly, that's not a requirement to receive a diagnosis of binge eating disorder. It's what we call the... Uh, we think of it as a severity specifier. So it just means that we, when we're looking at people or treating people with binge eating, we want to know the level of their body image concerns because that would tailor our approach there. So they're the three main types. We are also many other subtypes as well that fall under a, what we call an atypical category. So they're people who don't quite meet the specific diagnostic criteria of the other three that I talked about, but they do experience relatively comparable levels of distress, impairment, harm, and just basically um, poor quality of life. So they're the they're the broad. That's a broad overview of the eating disorders and what kind of underpins or differentiates between them.
0: So yeah, it, it, it doesn't strike me as kind of like a, a very very cut and dry definition um, for for any of them at all. There's you know a certain amount of criteria that needs to be met before you can. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that you, you mentioned that there are there are some types that are kind of like atypical. Um, I think it's really, really important to recognize that, you know, there are some people who may be suffering from an eating disorder and it may not fit within the classical definition of some of the ones that you mentioned, but, you know, it, it's, it's still something that's, that's causing an issue. In, in the case of people like that, how can they be di- diagnosed or is diagnosis just often overlooked in them? Um,
1: I'm not sure that
0: it's overlooked. It's just that they, so the the most frequent
1: example is that they exhibit the signs and symptoms of the other three eating disorders, but there are specific thresholds in order to receive a diagnosis. So for bulimia nervosa, for example, in order to attain a diagnosis, the person must have engaged in at least one episode on average a week over the past three months so there are many people out there who engage in, for example, one episode of fortnight rather than one episode a week or, you know, two episodes in a month or something like that. So it just doesn't meet that really stringent criteria. So they exhibit them. So what we would, we would classify those people as, for example, um, bulimia nervosa low threshold. So there's just little names that we kind of give them. But ultimately what we're doing is we're treating, the, we're treating very common symptoms across all the eating disorders and there's actually a push towards um, eradicating or eliminating the different names of eating disorders and just just, just imagining eating disorder as one big, big disorder um, without going into too much detail. And I think there is merit towards that approach, um, particularly when we look at the underlying uh, causes or the underlying maintaining factors, you, what we see is that they're strikingly similar across different eating disorders. And that suggests that treatment approaches... Um, should be relatively similar across the different disorders if they're sharing the same common causes or mechanisms. So this is what we call a transdiagnostic perspective, um, which means that we should just basically remove all the titles and all the names, put it all under one umbrella called an eating disorder And then all the treatment approaches should be tailored or based um towards the unique uh profile of each individual with recognition that on average um the profiles will be largely similar across people
0: so if 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 we think about that that, you know if if we think of looking at uh, eating disorders as just kind of a large group of of uh, of very very similar disorders there would need to be some sort of a key characteristic that's shared by them all. And would you say that that is the issues with body image that some people with eating disorders share?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the theory behind it. So the, 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 the thing, what we like to, what we, but what what the literature likes to say in terms of the core psychopathology is what we call an extreme overvaluation of body weight and shape. So what that basically means is that, you know, when we look at people from everyday life who don't have an eating disorder, who don't really exhibit many signs or symptoms, they're just kind of quote-unquote normal people, um, they, their identity or who they evaluate themselves uh, is based on many different life domains. So, for example, our identity is intertwined with our family, our friends, our education, our sporting achievement, our hobbies, um, many, many different things, and that occupies our sphere of self-worth. But the peculiar thing about people with eating disorders is that their self-worth is almost entirely governed by what the scales tell them or what their body looks like, so what their figure is like. So that that is what we call an over-evaluation. So their self-worth is dictated by their body image. And this is problematic um, because it is a direct cause or a direct um, it directly encourages all of the other symptoms of eating disorders. Whether or not people migrate towards an, an extreme underweight and they're able to maintain their restriction, or whether or not people are still restrict but they're not able to maintain and they get engage in chaotic episodes of binge eating and purging. So the idea is, the idea is basically. Um, w- the, the the surface level symptoms like the, the under the you know the underweight and the binge eating, they're the surface level things that's come from something bigger, something more ingrained. And that's that over evaluation that's the thing that's more ingrained that we should be taking into account. Um, and that's the thing that defines all eating disorders. And interestingly, um, there's research being done to show that if we are able to effectively treat the surface level symptoms, so we see people that they recover, so they completely abstain from binging, purging, restriction, if we don't effectively address this over-evaluation of body weight and shape, then those people for whom it isn't addressed, they are much more likely to relapse down the track or migrate to a different eating disorder status compared to people for whom that construct has been sufficiently addressed. So that provides some support for the idea that this is the crux that is holding up all eating disorders. So once we get into that and we address it, then everything else should kind of fall apart or break down a little bit. But the problem is that this construct is so stable, it's the most difficult thing ever to get to um, in order to make sufficient change. So at the moment, we don't really have too many powerful treatment strategies or intervention strategies that can sufficiently address or target it. We've got some things that we think may work, but we're still a long way off. Uh, towards you know making sure that we get we stop this thing from from spiraling out of control.
0: So uh, I, I suppose what, what you're saying is that like a, a lot of it, is, a lot of you know the, treating the symptomology of of a lot of these conditions, um, it isn't really having the effect of, of of basically stopping them because you're not dealing with like the root cause, which is that psychological issue related to body image and related to, to people's people's self worth. Um, and ju- just on that, because you, because you mentioned treatment strategies, um, what are some of the more, let's say, traditional strategies that people have been using for, for treating? Uh, and if you want to focus on binge eating, we can, but we can also speak about um, eating disorders in general. What are some of the more common traditional methods for, for dealing with them?
1: Um, so, so do you mean a dealing with eating disorders as a whole, or or just that over-evaluation that I was just speaking about there?
0: Well, let's let's speak about them as a whole, and then we can we can move on to um, the body image, the overevaluation.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the treatment approaches the the. So I've, this is kind of my area of uh, expertise in terms of evaluating. Evaluating treatment approaches. Um, so there's a clear standout in terms of what's our, the best available approach, and that's, that's a treatment called cognitive behavioural therapy, and I'm sure most of your listeners have, have, are aware of or have heard of CBT to some extent. But cognitive behavioural therapy is basically a treatment approach designed to target the things that are keeping the eating disorder going. And what we, we call these things maintaining mechanisms So according to the theory behind treatment, the two core maintaining mechanisms of all eating disorders uh, is that over-evaluation of body weight and shape and extreme dietary restraint. Um, Sorry, there are three. Extreme dietary restraint and an inability to modulate negative mood states. So an inability to react properly or healthily to sudden shifts or changes in moods. So what cognitive behavioural therapy does it spends all its time uh, and all of its strategies or, or treatment strategy towards targeting those three things. It just spends that much time addressing those three things with the hypothesis that if you're able to address those three things, then the surface-level symptoms that we see that define eating disorders, so binge eating, purging, extremely dangerously low body weights and things like that, those will just go away if we're able to address those maintaining mechanisms because those things, are the, those maintaining mechanisms are the, are the things that are keeping the cycle going. So if we're able to stop them, then what we should be sufficient enough to promote recovery. So there are CBT is composed of a variety of a collection of different treatment, treatment strategies and they're all packaged up into one big treatment. So, And then there are different um, levels of the treatment and there's a whole nuance. But anyway, the core treatment approaches that we use in CBT Um, include self-monitoring or symptom monitoring monitoring so that involves in the moment real time recording of relevant thoughts feelings and behaviors towards food eating and body image basically and the idea is that um this is the first thing that we need to introduce in treatment. And it's because the person needs to become aware of everything that is going on in their life in terms of their eating disorder. What's keeping it going, what's prompting it, what's causing it, what's making it better, everything possible. We need to become aware of that. And the only way to do that is by recording things in real time. People may say, people have said to me, and, you know, I've spoken to many clinicians and they've said, I know exactly what goes on with my eating disorder. And I would challenge that because you haven't spent time documenting everything and reviewing it on a daily basis. So you might, have, you, might try to, you might have tried to remember something in the morning, but you don't remember the absolute detail if you're thinking back to your breakfast this morning, for example. What were the specific cognitive, affective, and behavioral things that were going on at that point in time that triggered an episode, for example? So self-monitoring is a key element, um, and it just helps people understand their disorder. Other things include promoting a pattern of regular and flexible eating, and that really tries to, that tries to tackle those really harmful forms of dieting or dietary restraint. So the idea is we need to introduce consistency and structure into a person's life, and to do that, we, we kind of mandate the client to eat at regular intervals, um, three meals a day and three snacks a day, no more than three to four hours apart. Because if we do that, not only do we introduce a sense of control that we need we need a sense of structure and control, but like i said it, it 's one way of tackling that harmful dieting strategy that people use, so things like fasting, skipping meals, um, going for very long periods of time, etc then there are many other things towards addressing negative mood states as well so things like problem solving so helping people learn how to effectively deal with or or solve certain issues that are going on with their lives because we know when people encounter a problem a lot of the time people with eating disorders resort to food as the solution that's the thing that gives them comfort although comfort although that's okay to some extent the issue arises when people feel incredibly worse after and it just maintains the cycle so what we try to do is teach effective problem solving and there are many other things for addressing extreme body image concerns as well. So it's self-monitoring, as I spoke about, but there are also things trying to help people broaden their scheme of self-worth to really encouraging more behavioural activation. So that's another psychological treatment where what we do is we encourage people to engage in many different positive reinforcing activities. So over time, what we tend to realise is that the sphere of self-worth grows and people find the other sources or other domains with which they evaluate who they are as a person. And that directly diminishes that over-evaluation of body weight and shape. So I could talk forever about the different types of treatment strategies, but I think they're the crux or they're the broad strategies. They're the foundations, I should say, that underpin CBT, but there are many, many more that underpin as well um, that are also kind of very useful for addressing those things that I spoke about.
0: So, if we look at kind of like a results perspective, how successful is CBT in in helping to treat, um, let's say, binge eating, or or if you have the, the figures for for you know eating disorder, other types of eating disorders those as well?
1: Yeah. So this is a question I was really interested in, and um, I addressed this actually recently in in two meta analyses. I wanted to ask the question: What were reco- recovery rates from binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa following every single psychological treatment there is available ever. Um, So what I did was um, I, this was in my spare time because I thought it was fun, but I reviewed the literature on every randomised control trial of eating disorder treatment and what I did was I meta-analyzed, just the fancy word for aggregating, um, I aggregated all of the recovery rate estimates from these randomised control trials for bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. Um, and recovery was usually defined as the absence of binge eating and purging, so no doing that no more, which is a bit problematic because I said it doesn't really address the root cause, which is the body image stuff. Um, so that's another issue in itself. So I had to rely on those definitions the authors used. And the, the picture was pretty dire, actually. I was actually quite surprised. So for bulimia nervosa, um, our recovery rates for people who fully completed treatment was around, um, if I, my memory serves me right, it was around 40%, right? So 40% of those who completed treatment, and that's for CBT in particular. And when we take a more conservative approach or conservative perspective where we look at all the people, we take a, we call this the intention to treat approach where we assume that most people who do psychotherapy don't complete it. They drop out for many types of reasons. And there's the assumption in psychotherapy that if you drop out, you haven't really gotten that much better. So we, we tend to treat those people who drop out and never come back and, Basically drop off the face of the earth as people who still have their eating disorder because it just kind of it 's a more conservative approach, and when I looked at those numbers and I considered the number of people who dropped out of psychotherapy, the number dropped to actually thirty percent, so only thirty percent of people with bulimia nervosa recovered um, when we 're considering that conservative estimate for binge eating disorder, the picture is a little bit more um, Positive, and I found—I'm uh, saying I because this was I single authored this paper. I found that it was 50% recovered from from binge eating disorder, and it was and a, the more conservative estimate was like 47% or something like that. Um, so ultimately, the conclusions I made from that research was um, we need to improve bad. We need to improve desperately because if that's the best we've got. Uh, and heart, it's kind of like flip a coin, who's going to improve or not, then it's pretty dire. And I've actually followed that research up by trying to understand um, who responds to therapy and who doesn't. So I tried to really understand predictors of treatment outcome and really look at the types of people um, who will recover versus the types of people who don't recover. So, I, you know, I... I to put it in more simpler terms, if, if someone might be confused listening to this, imagine you're a clinician and you're treating someone with an eating disorder. Can you look at that person and, and kind of look at their psychology and, say to, and, and predict with accuracy whether they will or will not respond? And that would be really helpful, wouldn't it? Because it would it would um, it would allow for a more tailored approach in treatment. If I, there's a high likelihood that this person will not respond, then what we need to do is we need to provide much more intensive treatment. We need to be on the ball, you know, ASAP. And my conclusions from that paper was we don't know just yet. Like we've got no idea. We haven't identified any predictors of outcome or any consistent predictors of outcome. So we are really going in with a blind eye in terms of, you know, people with these problems are coming to treatment and the professionals out there, although we're trying our very best, we are kind of like, we're not, we can't predict with accuracy if you're going to get better or not. We can just try our best and hope for the best, but you know, there's, so there's much more that needs to be done and this is hopefully where i'm coming in so i'm devoting a lot of time towards understanding predictors of outcome and trying to and using machine learning based approaches to identify patterns in data to help um, predict who are the people that are going to respond versus who are the people who need urgent intensive care because there's a low probability of them recovering
0: I really want to get into the predictors of outcome. But just before we do that, I, just because of something that you mentioned. So you said that um, like when you were doing the meta-analyses and you were looking at studies that were looking at rates of recovery, you were looking at uh, – so those rates of recovery were defined as a lack of symptoms. Um, and is there a possibility that somebody may not be showing – Symptoms of um, of an eating disorder at a given point in time, but may still be suffering with like the underlying cause or those underlying body issues. They just haven't kind of come up to the surface in a while. Yeah,
1: absolutely, um, that is absolutely true. And when we see that. Um, when we see that there's, in, there's improvements in binge eating and purging that does not necessarily translate to improvements in the ingrained cognitive processes that go on that cause everything else um, so unfortunately there hasn't been really a way to define recovery in terms of cognitions because it's just too hard to define it's a construct that we can't observe and we can't see it's not a behavior so we can't we can't define anything as the absence of cognition because, you know, it's just too difficult to define. So, um, yes, I would say that basically nearly most people who have recovered from their eating disorder have some level of cognitive processes that are also you know operating in their head that's still going on and i've followed that up as well so these are questions you're asking that i've asked myself and i've kept on following these kind of went down a rabbit hole and i was interested to see whether or not psychotherapy can actually effectively address these underlying cognitions that we're talking about so then i i followed this up in 2018 on another meta-analysis where I wanted to look at whether psychotherapy was effective in targeting the over-evaluation of weight and shape and also effective in targeting extreme dietary restrictions, so two of the core maintaining mechanisms that maintain binge eating and purging. And I found that, yes, we did find good evidence, or I did because was a sing- another, um, I did this paper by myself, and I did find that there was strong evidence that it was associated with moderate effect size it was it was a moderate effect so there was a modest change in these underlying beliefs and 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 um thoughts so but again to to, to answer your question it doesn't necessarily mean that if people recover from binge eating and purging that they still don't have these really bad things going on in their head and the likelihood is that they still do to some extent the severity of that will dictate whether or not they relapse later on down the track or whether they just move to another
0: eating disorder um, and that kind of brings me on to this next, next question. And we, we spoke about this just, just before we started. Um, you said you had done a, um, a paper recently on the potential effects of the, the current pandemic on um, eating disorders. And I just wanted to ask, what are your, your thoughts around, um, let's say, the situation that people are in, are in right now? Because we know it's, it's a very, very high stress situation for very many people. People are out of their normal schedule um do you think that there's a possibility for uh, a relapse of symptoms or even for the development of of symptoms in people who might not have had it before
1: yeah absolutely and you know it's funny that you've mentioned this because i think two days literally two days ago we had a paper i wasn't the lead on this i was just part of the team where we had a paper accepted discussing um the the pathways through which the current pandemic will exacerbate eating disorder symptoms or risk factors and there are a couple of key take-home points we made and a couple were that this pandemic um results in a number of things that puts people at risk and one is the social isolation factor social isolation or social um uh, social connectedness is a is a key protective factor for eating disorders. So the bigger our social, the bigger and more supportive our social network is, the lower the likelihood of people engaging or experiencing eating disorder symptoms. This pandemic directly um, affects that because we know more people are being isolated. We're not able to, um, although it's changed a little bit in Australia now, but previously we weren't able to see our friends, not even our family, our immediate family, we weren't even allowed to see. We just had to basically stay at home And many people um, live at home by themselves, Uh, so that that feelings of isolation has a really strong potential to trigger um, certain eating disorder behaviours, particularly binge eating and particularly restriction and compulsive exercise behaviours, because it's almost like it's a way to cope, it's a way to kind of take our loneliness and isolation feelings away and it just provides us with an immediate sense of distraction. In addition to that, we find that we've there's actually empirical research showing that alcohol consumption has skyrocketed during this COVID pandemic um, due to many things like social isolation, boredom, many different reasons. And we know alcohol consumption is a direct cause of binge eating and, and purging-related behaviours. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's another pathway through which Um, Eating disorder risk is being worsened through alcohol consumption. And another one is this thing called food insecurity. So a lot of people are being financially or economically impacted through this crisis. Many people have lost their jobs. Many people are struggling for money. And what we find, food insecurity um, is directly linked with bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. So food insecurity is worry or constant concern about not being able to afford food like we normally do or enough food. And people that have these conditions are particularly susceptible to food insecurity because there's sometimes a sense of guilt and shame experienced when You know, people feel guilty because there's not enough food in the house, so they'll even go to further lengths towards restricting their eating. Um, And then the restriction cycle just promotes bouts of binge eating later on, or it promotes that starvation-related symptoms in anorexia nervosa. So this economic impact that the current pandemic is having uh, is a well-known contributor towards eating disorder risk and symptoms. So just to summarise, because I know I said a lot there, that the key the key issues or pathways that are p- making people making this work this pandemic making eating disorders worse include food insecurity so economic reasons um, emotional as social reasons and also alcohol-related reasons. There are many more as well that I won't go into because, I, again, I could talk for hours on it, but um, they're the three ones. So they're the three things we highlighted in the paper that are basically ideas worth researching um, in the near future towards better understanding how we can deal with it if something like this or something of lower severity
0: happens again. I I think so. You know, a a lot of the things that you've mentioned there are going to be brought up in a lot of health related papers to come out about the COVID situation. And I think it's forcing a lot of research groups to look at some of, let's say, the non classical or the non standard or the non accepted causes of, of different health conditions um and like you know you brought up food insecurity so you're you're talking about a kind of a socioeconomic factor there as well you brought up alcohol abuse um so yeah there's going to be a lot of very very interesting research coming out in in the next um in the next uh, few weeks and months um Absolutely. just just, bit, just to get back to the so you were talking about different characteristics that are related to eating disorders um i was wondering if you could talk to some of Talk, talk about some of the dietary characteristics and maybe some of the personality characteristics or traits that are related to the development of, of, of eating disorders.
1: Yeah, so we know, I think, I think it's been shown that the strongest or maybe the second strongest risk factor for eating disorders is dietary restraint. The first is, is body image or body dissatisfaction. Um, I'll need to double check, but I think that's the order with which it goes. So dietary restraint, when we think about it, it's such a broad con- concept. It's such a broad, um, there are many different components or facets of dietary restraint. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people at times tend to use, tend to use this one big umbrella term um, and say dietary restraint, but without going into some really specific and nuanced details about it. So the, the, the form or the type of dietary, there is a specific type of dietary restraint that puts people at risk for eating disorders or maintains eating disorders because we know that not everyone who goes on a weight loss diet or a diet of some sort goes on to develop an eating disorder. If that's the case, then basically everyone in the world would almost have an eating disorder. There's only a small proportion um, that, that, have, that, that go on to develop an eating disorder. And we've kind of figured out that the diets that are extreme and inflexible are the ones that put people most at risk. So what I mean by that is the diets that are composed of multiple strict and demanding food rules that dictate what someone can eat, when someone can eat, and how much someone can eat. So these people have such strict... And, and you know precise rules that they must adhere to uh, in their in their diet, and if there 's any breaking of that rule, then that is the thing that will basically lose control. The person will lose control and engage in bouts of binge eating and purging. so the diet must be strict, inflexible, and extreme for it to put someone at serious risk for eating disorder and there are multiple different types of food rules people try to adhere to. Uh, You know, the ones what we hear are not touching carbohydrates, for example, so not allowing yourself any carbs. Uh, That's an extreme food rule because it's very hard to sustain over long periods of time. Uh, I'm not talking about health at the moment. I'm just talking about what puts people at risk for an eating disorder. Health, in terms of physical health and weight loss, that's not my area of expertise. Like someone could be like, Jake, you're wrong on that. You know, that's not my... I'm talking specifically about what puts people at risk for eating pathology. Um, So those are the types of... That's the component of dietary restraint or the characteristics that really make people susceptible. But in saying that, there are many people who have rigid and extreme dietary restraint characteristics that don't go on to develop an eating disorder. So then that suggests that there are multiple different types of interacting factors going on genetics biology personality social environment it's not one cause that's causing an eating disorder so we must look at the whole picture together but we know that these this form of restraint is really problematic for a lot of people and then that must be addressed so sometimes you we can't we can't tell people to stop dieting, we can encourage them and warn them about the risks, but some people just don't want to do it and, you know, we can't force people to do that, fine. We do know that a more flexible approach to dieting is much safer, whether it's much safer than a rigid approach. Whether it's safe in and of itself is a question that hasn't been answered yet. People are very quick to shun flexible dietary restraint. It is very frustrating when people discount all forms of, of dietary restraint. I'm not saying that it's healthy or it's safe to engage in flexible restraint. I am simply saying that we don't know yet. So stop, hold your horses is basically what I'm saying. We're not too sure. We do know that it's much safer than a rigid form of restraint. But like I said, whether it's healthy in and of itself is a question that will be answered, hopefully, in the near future. So... um So that's the top type of dietary characteristics that we know of that is really problematic for eating
0: disorders. Just on that, um, so you mentioned like flexible and rigid dietary restraints. Um, But when you were describing the rigid dietary restraints, you mentioned like, you know, adhering to certain food rules. So in the fitness community or the nutrition community, we often talk about flexible dieting. Um, and an approach that allows people to eat, you know, a certain amount of foods, but like still, still sticking to a set of guidelines. And let's say it might be macros or calories or something like that. Does that not still fit within rigid dietary control?
1: Yeah, and that's a very good question, and the answer is we don't know yet because the measurement of flexible dietary restraint is very, very poor. We've only got one measure of flexible and rigid dietary restraint, and what we actually find is that they overlap quite considerably. There's a high correlation between those measures, which is suggesting that they're kind of measuring similar things. They're measuring similar constructs if they're related. Um, so our measurement of flexible restraint is poor. And when I'm talking about the evidence behind flexible restraint, I'm relying purely on that measurement. I know that in the kind of the fitness community and, and all that kind of stuff that people are talking about what they think flexible restraint is and their idea or their notion of that. Um, and, the, and, and my answer to that is I'm not sure if that is actual flexible restraint because we don't know yet. We don't have a psychometrically sound or valid measure of flexible restraint. So we do have rigid restraint measures, and that, that's been shown. It's been proven, you know, the validity of those measures, of that measure has been proven. But, um, yeah, flexible restraint is a tricky one because we don't know really what it is just yet. We don't know what it is independent of rigid restraint. We have some idea... Um, the, the, the component or the feature that seems to really, that seems to differentiate rigid and flexible restraint is when people allow themselves to eat a wide variety of foods, but they still pay attention to their figure, their, their body image and stuff like that. That's the characteristic that has been empirically shown to differentiate from rigid, the rigid elements of restraint. Um, there's only one study that's tried to do that, that's tried to isolate flexible restraint and understand what it is actually from independent of frigid restraint, and that is the only element that emerged. And the item was something along the lines of I pay attention to my figure even though I enjoy a wide variety of different foods. So, yeah, my, my short answer to that question is I actually don't know what flexible restraint means. Like, we don't know just yet. Um, we've got no idea. From a scientifically speaking, we don't know what flexible restraint is. So, you know, we've got, we've got ideas, many instagramers all over the world tend to post what they think flexible restraint is with not much kind of evidence behind their claims or you know relying on anecdote for example um but you know my response to that is well is that really flexible restraint i don't know unless someone comes up with a measure and actually validates it then then let's let's go with that but at the moment yeah this area is just um growing i guess and
0: you know there's still heaps that we need to know I think that's a major issue with, especially on the social media side of things, is that um, when something is, or an idea or a concept is becoming popular, but the, uh, that idea isn't fully formed yet, or we don't have the science backing up, it's very, very easy for people to just come up with their own concept or their own opinions or their own ideas about it and kind of market that as, as the idea. Um, yeah, I'm just, say,
1: that's, in, that's yeah. important though. Like we need those ideas because we need a basis to go off. So I shouldn't say that people shouldn't put out their opinions of what it is. Like we need those opinions that informs the testing of a, or the, or the development of a measure of something that actually taps into flexible restraint. So we definitely need these ideas and opinions from people all over the world particularly, you know, health-related people because they're dealing with the population. But what, what, what sometimes is, um, can be a bit kind of misleading is people claiming that that is what it is, like making these hard claims about that, you know, this is what flexible restraint is, this is beneficial. It's like, nah, you know, you've come up with good hypotheses for what it is. We actually need to confirm that a little bit down the track and we actually haven't confirmed anything just yet.
0: And uh, so based on that, based on like what we're speaking about, uh, flexible dietary control and rigid control, where does, let's say, a, a, an intuitive eating approach fit into, into this concept?
1: So an intuitive eating approach is is so i've shown it through my research and a couple of others have shown it through their research it's a conceptually distinct approach from restraint eating so it it falls it doesn't fall on the same continuum as restraint a lot of people like to think of intuitive eating being here at one end and rigid restraint being here on the other end. I've actually, through my own work, I've actually discounted that. Like I've shown that that's not the case at all. Um, so intuitive eating is an entirely different pattern of eating. It's a different style of eating that is basically um, teaches people to rely on their hunger and fullness cues and their eating is guided towards physiology and kind of their, um, you know, what their body needs. And not only physically speaking, but emotionally speaking as well. So eating is guided based on physiology and there's no, sorry, based on um, uh, body cues and there's no kind of um, external driven rules that dieting kind of has. So intuitive eating is a growing area in terms of there's a, Wealth of research that's shown, that it's shown relationships between intuitive eating and, and heaps of different positive health outcomes. But the, the intuitive eating movement is getting overplayed remarkably. Um, the, so there's a, uh, you have a look at the, the, the systematic reviews and, and meta-analyses on intuitive eating, and 95% of the studies are cross-sectional. So cross-sectional, just for your listeners, is when we measure everything at one point in time and there's absolutely no way in how we can determine cause and effect or determine whether one thing is then encouraging or leading to another thing. We're only documenting things as they are right now. So 95% of the studies are cross-sectional. I think there's one prospective study that's shown intuitive eating to predict, um, temporally predict good health outcomes And there's another study that's shown that intuitive eating can be learned in eating disorder recovery. That was an uncontrolled study, um, not an RCT, many different severe limitations to that study. But, you know, in principle, intuitive eating is excellent. It makes people feel great. Um, It's got heaps of potential towards helping people get healthier eating patterns down the track. But I think the evidence for intuitive eating is getting severely overplayed, particularly from media and public health channels, Uh, because when you take a close look at the research, uh, the research is, is very... Uh, preliminary and it's all based on cross-sectional data Um, so you know there are plenty of limitations to that which is why I would never promote intuitive eating for someone who is recovering from eating disorder there is actually no good quality evidence whatsoever showing that, so that intuitive eating should be beneficial for eating disorders. I'm talking about clinically significant eating disorders here. So, you know, until there's an RCT done on intuitive eating and eating disorders, then we can maybe talk about it. But I think we should hold our horses a little bit. And you know, wait until something gets better before jumping into intuitive eating. But for the general population, I think we should—it's something that we should be encouraging a lot of people to engage in.
0: It, it's very interesting the way you know you mentioned that there's no kind of real um, decent evidence supporting intuitive eating and eating disorders. Um, because if we were to base our opinions on what you know certain, let's say, social media accounts or social media outlets were were telling us it you know seems to be the holy grail um, but that's just not the case
1: yeah well you know cuz Richie, like you know we do we're we do research so we we are aware of the strengths and the limitations like to a very nitty gritty like um an extent and i'm not saying that no one else is aware of the nitty gritties of the limitations and strengths and quality of certain research but you know it's something that you need to be aware of so um, you know, you can pull apart. There are a lot of different limitations that, that, that are in the research of intuitive eating. And it's a, you know, I do a lot of research on intuitive eating and it's based, it's all based on cross sectional so far because that's what we've got at the moment. But we'll see over time it's moving towards better quality evidence, moving up the hierarchy. So, you know, I, I dare say that intuitive eating, you know, will be, you know, it will be something to go on the future but just at the moment i think we need to hold back i will note that there are many non-dieting interventions that aim to promote intuitive eating and they've shown in rcts to result in in fewer eating disorder symptoms but the 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 thing that i would caution against that is those non-dieting interventions are a package of a bunch of different intervention strategies that not only contains intuitive eating but it contains heaps of other elements as well so Although those RCTs are showing positive effects, we haven't yet isolated the specific effects of intuitive eating on these positive health outcomes. So as a whole, it's embedded, this intuitive eating is embedded within many other different elements. So we need to disentangle that first before we can really start saying, yeah, this is the approach to go with. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for intuitive eating and I think it's excellent and people should really focus on trying to eat based on their body signals because that's what it needs. But all I'm saying is that we need to be careful of the exaggerated claims that can be made sometimes because the evidence is just not out there at the moment. We don't have these high-quality RCTs, long, large sample prospective studies that document changes in intuitive eating over time.
0: Okay, no, absolutely. Um, like like you said, a, what you're saying is it, you're not discrediting um, intuitive eating at all. But yeah, it's it, we do need more uh, evidence on it, um, on its effectiveness. Gus, um, like, there's so much that we could talk about, and I uh, I'm getting I'm getting frustrated because I know that there's so much I want to talk about, so much I want to ask you about, and I know we've got a limited amount of time. Um, so let's say that we, we may need to get you on for this in the future, but one question that I really wanted to, to, to get to you and kind of finish up on is I know that you've recently put out um, a new guide on, uh, to help people with, with binge eating recovery. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and how it was developed and, and how, how it works.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a new ebook and it's freely downloadable. So anyone could go on my Instagram and download it. It's, I think it's like 40 pages or something. It's just basically a self-help approach to for binge eating. So people who are struggling with binge eating, it's a five-step self-help approach and it's based on cognitive behavioural principles. Um, and you'll read that there is actually some intuitive eating uh, advocate, advocacy in there towards the end of the book as well when people feel that they've stabilised their eating behaviour. Um, so it's, it's a basically a five-step program towards helping people overcome binge eating. It's heavily based on previous, um, previous published manuals for binge eating. So it's not, I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's just, I've just re re summarized or rewritten or taken elements from different approaches and made it in a more palatable format for the audience. it's also got a bunch of other things there as well, including, um, you know, a lot of different worksheets people have to to help complete their exercises and their strategies. Exercises, their strategies. Uh, it's got screening tools and it's got kind of like additional tips for helping people overcome binge eating too. Um, so yeah, check it out. Freely downloadable on my website and on my Instagram. Um, and you know, it's it's based. It's backed by evidence in terms of the steps are. Uh, it's the steps are. Um, uh, have have proven to be effective in previous research, uh, so I would encourage people, you know, to to download. I think we've had an enormous amount of downloads. <clears throat> we've released it, I think, two days ago. And you know, if it can help, if it can help a portion of those people, then that's that's great.
0: Well, that's that's absolutely phenomenal. And like the fact that um, I think I said it to you already, the fact that you put that out, like you put so much work into it, and then that you put that content out for free is absolutely phenomenal and like you know it just kind of just adds to the amount of you know useful content that you're you're putting out to the world in general so um thanks for putting it out for one thing um i i i'm very very conscious of your time jake and i just want to say i'm so appreciative of this conversation and all that i like like i said i i could speak about this with you for hours but i won't do that shit up But just for anybody, you know, in case anybody um, isn't already following you or wants to learn more about you, what are some of the best places to to kind of follow you and get in touch with you or to to see the rest of your work?
1: Yeah, I I think the Instagram, I I keep on top of that pretty regularly and that's Break Binge Eating. So it's just content out there related to eating disorders and what we've talked about today. Um, I try to mix that up and make it as engaging as possible. And also my website. The website is the big one where we get the most engagement. Um, so the website is just com and you'll see that there is, you know, there is about, I would say there's maybe about 20 to 30 different articles on all different topics related to eating disorders. So eat, hopefully easy-to-read articles. I've tried to write it in a way that's really palatable to the general popul- population. Um, so check it out. Uh, and there's many different opportunities there. So I'm running many different research trials. I'm in the, in the middle of complete... Um, finishing up my app trial for the Break Binge Eating app. So I'm trying to test its effectiveness there. So I've given the opportunity for, you know, 400 people to have the app for free. I just needed them as participants for my research. I've got amazing feedback on that so far. So I'm, you know, doing many more trials in the future. If you're wanting to participate in those trials, make sure you follow the account. Um, And, you know, it's it's just the way to basically spread the word. It's my hobby, my passion, and this is another way that I can, disseminate all the information and i just realized the power of social media not too long ago the amount of people you can reach on social media is amazing and it's it's great to see and there's numerous experts that are doing this beautiful stuff out there that is helping the general population the general public and i'm hoping that i am one of those that is
0: that is helping you 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 absolutely are and there's there's kind of no need to, to to wonder if you are at all Um, And and just on that, just because that social media question is something that I think is important, Um, just as kind of something to end on, for people who are in the fitness industry and who um, put out content related to diet and to exercise, is there anything that they should be doing or that they should be aware of when they're putting out their content to make sure that they're not, let's say, promoting disorder eating or anything that might promote um, an eating disorder in somebody <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's a good question, actually. That's a very good question because we know that there is the potential for um, a lot of people to promote misinformation relating to this. And I can, un- I can kind of understand it because health and fitness people, a lot of the time they're promoting physique-related goals and, and, and performance Tasks. so people you know bodybuilding for example um you need to reach a, reach a specific body weight in order to compete or do well in your competition so there's an understanding in that regard but it also has the potential to really promote really harmful stuff and stuff that can't be that can't basically be um difficult to get over so i would just recommend promoting things that we know that are safer than than harmful so the things that we know that are harmful are these extreme diet practices so those really rigid diets those fasting type things are really problematic um trying to be as flexible and intuitive as possible towards our eating so they're good methods of eating that we think that are associated with a lot of good improvement um and you know trying to trying to steer the focus away from shape and weight-related purposes. So if you're a fitness instructor or a professional, really focus on more performance-related tasks. So, um, you know, a lot of the time I like thinking about personal bests, really trying to strive well at performance-based And also things like um, enhancing a sense of social connectedness. So I know there are a lot of profiles out there that do an excellent job towards uh, instilling a sense of community. And and that sense of belonging is a protective factor against these harmful patterns we see. So I think they're the key things that we should be aware of. You want to shift the emphasis away from purely body image-related reasons and more onto other different domains. And other domains include health, um, you know, performance Uh, social connectedness. So really trying to instill an environment that is not not purely driven by body image. And that is the thing that will address or even prevent the onset of eating disorder behaviours. So I think that, you know, any health professional or fitness instructor can do this. They can shift the emphasis away from body weight and shape and move it towards health promotion and those kinds of things. And what we tend to see is that people's self-esteem will enhance and then that will, that is kind of protects against these harmful things there. So, um, so I think that anyone can instill that people who start promoting, you know, really subscribing or, or promoting these unrealistic appearance ideals, then that is, that can be problematic. Um, and, And you don't, you don't want that to happen because, Um, you know, it can do
0: more harm than good, I think. Absolutely. Um, I I think people on social media have quite a responsibility. um, And, you know, some people may not be aware of it, and not necessarily through any fault of their own, but just literally through a lack of awareness of of what their content can do for for other people. So it's it's good to kind of hear, you know, uh, your your thoughts on that. Um, Jake, I can't thank you enough for for this conversation um it's been absolutely enlightening and it's kind of it's like just from a personal level it's just made me realize how much more i want to learn about this and it's also kind of made me like it's i'm glad to know that there are people like you out there looking into this and researching it because obviously like you know like you described there's a lot more research that needs to be done um on this to to make sure that we're we're, we can help people uh, as well as possible so um I want to say, Jake, thank you very, very much, and um, I want to wish you the absolute best with uh, all of the research that you're doing right
1: now. I appreciate you having me on, and we should uh, aim to do this again one time. I'd be happy to come on because I feel like we didn't um, didn't talk about near as much as we we probably should have or we had planned. So, no, no, it was good. Uh, I have a tendency to ramble quite a bit. I get told off by a couple of my friends about that. But um, it's something I'm trying to work on. (laughs) It's something I'm trying to work on and I'm trying to get better. But, no, we should do it again one time.
0: And hopefully there's more in this space to come. Absolutely. Just scratching the surface. So, uh, Jake, thank you very, very much. Um, Have a great evening. And um, I will hopefully be talking to you again very soon.
1: Beautiful. Thanks, Richie, and thanks, everyone, for, for joining in.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or maybe even share a link on social media, your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at bmorenutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.